Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 70s. Ryan, how's it going? Yeah, feels good to be in the 70s. This year was, uh, I don't know about you, but it's an emotional roller coaster for me. A, a week where one band puts out an album and every individual member puts out an album or two. And then the other band, the Rolling Stones, only put out a live album. Though I think that's the first time in the whole podcast where their one band doesn't have a studio album. Yeah, I guess it really speaks to the insane run that we obviously chose on purpose to combine these two bands together, that this has not really been an issue. I think Get Your Yaya's Out, which is the, the live album that the Rolling Stones released this year. In some people's opinion, it's it's one of the all, you know, it's considered one of the greatest live albums of all time. So that that's not nothing. Um, but when you compare it to all four Beatles putting out an album in addition to Let It Be, <laughs> the scale is certainly weighted in one direction. So we're we're just gonna preemptively say, me representing the Beatles this year, am I'm the winner of this. And you're just gonna <laughs> come over to me. We're gonna acknowledge first that Get Your Yaya's Out is a is a good live album. Talk about it for a minute, give it its due, because I don't we don't want to just ignore it, but there's just way too much uh I am very interested in framing this as a four-way death match between the Beatles. And we can just put the Rolling Stones to the side. We can chit-chat about get your yayas out. I want to reframe this year as not as Beatles versus Stones, but John versus Paul versus George yeah. versus Ringo. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh yeah, no, that's way better than taking six, six different Beatles albums, some of them, some of which are straight classics, and putting them against a 10-song live album of that features a ton of the material from the two album Rolling Stones albums we just talked about. Yeah, we've already talked about all of these songs. I'll, I'll say get your yaya just to do my do my job of repping the Beatles here. Like I think get your yaya's out is good. It's it's great, but like it could be that I'm fresh off two very intimate weeks with Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet that it, it kind of like a lot of the beautiful set, like intimate open space sound that are on those albums, these like versions of these songs, it's kind of like those songs, but without that charm to me, I, it's good, but it, I don't, I don't love it as much. I, as I, I understand that I've been assigned the Rolling Stones, but I'm with you. I don't get it at all. I, when I read that, <laughs> I know I just said this, but when I read that it's 
gen- generally considered one of the greatest live albums of all time. I was like, really? Like if if you maybe if you didn't just spend an inordinate amount of time with both Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet, you might be like, this is a great live album. But the fact that this album, both A, is from multiple different shows, it's not like this is just one long set that they put together. It's from three different shows. So they got the pick of their performances. And B, it's also overdubbed. <laughs> wow. On a lot of these songs, Mick's singing is overdubbed of him in the studio and some of the guitars on it uh, are overdubbed. So how live is it for a live album? Yeah, dang. I mean, it sounds like sonically it's captured better and what you just described is probably part of the reason than the live album we talked about earlier in the series, a few years earlier, where the crowd is going crazy and everything. Mm-hmm. But But like that one actually felt like it bottled up the energy of a live show more so than this. But, but I, but I know for a fact that I'm taking like that, like the meticulously perfect sympathy for the devil and just like hearing all the instruments that aren't on this or hearing all of the nuance that's not in it. And I know that like that happens at a live show and you just need energy and everything. But like, I don't know, I'm a little too close to those songs to just be like, fine. whose reputation we talk about all the time is like, well, you know, the the Rolling Stones, they're a live band. Like that's where they, that's where they flourish. That's where they have an edge over the Beatles. Yeah. 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 Um, I I just, this this does not like pick you up by the collar and like make you listen to it. And I agree that those earlier live songs on those albums, they just have a better energy to them. They have more excitement and Part part of the story of this album is there was a very famous bootleg album that was came out uh, a couple years before this, or, or maybe like the year prior, that was apparently one of the most famous and most circulated uh, bootleg live albums of all time, where someone managed to record uh, a, a show of the Rolling Stones. And apparently it was so good that people speculated that it might have even had to have been recorded from the stage even though it wasn't authorized by the Rolling Stones. And so Get Your Yaya's Out was a sort of like quick follow-up to like, well, we got to release this because someone's someone's making money of off us playing live. That's not us. So let's just put out a live album. Yeah. I think if they put out this run of albums, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile, and they have a, a year off in the middle of all that, like that kind of is the perfect time to put put out a live album especially if you've seen this demand from people like i i think it's and i think it's good we're talking like it's bad i think it's good but eh, i don't know i I, i'll take those other two albums and i think for me the platonic ideal of a live performance is something that does that sounds very similar to the live performance but then adds some kind of twist or some kind of intensity to that yeah, I agree. Like Sympathy for the Devil is six minutes and 52 seconds on this album. It's about that long on the record. Like you want this to be like the 12 minute Sympathy for the Devil that goes like meanders into hell. Like, but it's <laughs> but it's kind of like just a live version of Sympathy for the Devil. I mean, although you get like, you get this live, like Keith Richards just ripping on guitar on some of these songs in a way that isn't the case on some of those like, previous albums that are a little more stripped back. 
there there are some moments that I was like, hell yeah, this is going. So it's, it's a perfect segue into Let It Be and the performances on Let It Be and the, the rooftop concert that would go on to later be featured in the film Let It Be, which we're going to include here because that came out in 1970, even though uh, it was actually that performance took place in January of 1969. Um, I did not know until this week that some of the songs on Let It Bleed, the takes from those songs are literally record. They were the recordings from the Beatles playing on the rooftop. And I was always impressed that, oh man, these guys, they're playing live out in this like cold, I'm assuming it's cold as England in January uh, rooftop. And they sound exactly like the record. And it turns out the reason they sound exactly like the record is because they recorded that shit and they put it on the record. And that's how good it is. That's really awesome. You said, let it bleed a second ago, but we all know you mean, let it be. Um, yeah, sure. But <laughs> I have to say in my experience this week, this year, and having gone through this whole process now where we've cycled through the entire catalog of the Beatles release, their output, I think Let It Be is my second favorite Beatles album. I love it. I fell, I, I fell like newly in love with it as well this week. I think we kicked out a, a quality podcast last week, but also we both came away like, oh, that, uh, what is it? Is, is Abbey Road too perfect? Is it... I don't know. I, I, my love affair with Let It Be was way stronger than it was with last week's Abbey Road. And I went into Abbey Road saying that this is the best like combined year between both bands on the whole podcast, probably all the way through it. And it probably still is. That prob- that's probably true. I, I feel like it's that similar effect or whatever that we had with Revolver and Rubber Soul and Abbey Road just has a feeling of being more notorious, more beloved, more famous. Um, I just like the songs on Let It Be better. And I like the feeling of these songs. And I like the performances better. There's there's a like a, a joy and a bounce to some of it. There's like, like you get the little like Maggie Mae kind of like interludes and stuff. It just has a, it feels a little more freewheeling. Oh, Which, again, puts the sort of lie to this idea of, well, yeah, you know, the Beatles stopped touring. They could never be the live band that the Rolling Stones are. I don't know. They ripped up those songs. Uh, Granted, they're not playing to anyone except like cops and onlookers from the street. But that performance to me is is extremely impressive. And I I was just (laughs) stunned to realize that that those songs are actually on there. It's, it's hard to talk about Let It Be without talking about the sort of release history and the, the goings-ons of like the production of the album and Phil Spector and all of that. Yeah, and, and real quick, just so all you like Rolling Stones heads know, this is a Beatles podcast for the rest of the time. So <laughs> chance for you to learn some stuff or a chance for you to turn it off and go elsewhere. But <laughs> Don't tell them that. No, please don't. We'll talk um, about them at the end, maybe. That's true, that's true. We'll button up with release schedule both in terms of the album they put out and the phil specter involvement and everything and the release schedule as it relates to the 
solo artists releasing their albums because that like right. plays into how they come out too. But tell us about the deal with Phil Spector and everything. The deal was is that this was this whole album was largely Paul driven, and you could tell during this whole period of the Beatles was there just seemed to be a sort of lethargy on the behalf of everyone and uh, a Paul trying to push them. It's like a classic example of like a group of people. And it's like, we have no ideas. And one person is like, I have a bunch of bad ideas. And uh, Paul is like, well, let's make another movie. Let's do this concept thing. We're going to record this in the sound stage. And everyone was miserable. They didn't like it. Um, and, and basically they recorded all of these songs and all these takes and their rooftop performance. And then they just kind of put it in a shelf and they handed it off to a producer and were like, do something with this, make an album out of this. And it's going to be in a movie and, and do something. And he did, they didn't like what he did. And so uh, somehow or another, it ended up in the hands of Phil Spector and uh, Phil Spector, for those who don't know, extremely famous record producer maybe the most famous record producer of all time. So, so yeah, a real quick pause to that is that that original person was Glenn Johns, the guy who released, who like produced all the biggest Eagles albums and like, like a, a, a man who would become a kingpin in his own right in the early seventies, but keep going on Spectre. I think the thing with, with Johns, I don't think the impression I got was that he did like a terrible job or anything. They were just kind of like nonplussed by it. Um, so Phil Spector takes it. And he Phil Spectres it up, which means huge. His whole thing was the wall of sound. You would just have to listen to it and listen to some of his stuff to understand that his fingerprints are kind of all over it. Um, and part of that story is that Paul McCartney uh, was not a fan of what Phil Spector ended up doing with it. But by the time Phil Spector was involved and finished his remix of the album, which makes it sound like a rap record, but uh <laughs> They were already broken up at that point and Paul was well on his way to his solo career. And so he was not about to like throw a hissy fit because he was too busy throwing hissy fits in 10 other directions. And so <laughs> there was some, anyways, in the, in the early 2000s, Paul commissioned a, another remix and remaster of this album called Let It Be Naked, um, which removes some of the flourishes that Phil Spector added, namely uh, the, the orchestral stuff on the long and winding road which Paul wanted to be a more just piano ballad. Honestly, the produ the production stuff doesn't really, I, I can't hear that much of a difference either way. You can hear on Across the Universe, there's kind of less tremolo on the guitar and Lennon singing, and there's less orchestral stuff. Words are flying out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. The biggest difference is the change in the, the track order and putting Get Back as the first song on the album rather than Two of Us, which I think is a no-brainer. How yeah. that wasn't the first song on the album, I, I, I will never understand that decision. Um, and then it also adds uh, Don't Let Me Down to the album, which was just on a, a B-side on a single. It wasn't actually on Let It Be, which is crucial to this album for me. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. What you just described is the order on Let It Be Naked? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the get back as track one is definitely a no brainer. Jojo was a man who thought he was an owner, but 
I actually really like two of us. Makes me feel good. But you know, oh, I love it. It's not a it's not a track one really. I mean, I'll, it works. It works perfectly fine. Like I like that. But get back just feels like a first track. It, but yeah, it's a perfect track too. Like I love that song. Uh, that that's just a classic track two song. That's not a first track song. That's a good point. That is a track two song. Paul McCartney claims the song Two of Us is a song that he wrote for Linda. And I do not believe him. Or rather, I choose not to believe him. Tell me why. I think it's a song about him and John. Do people kind of widely think that? I certainly think that's people's suspicion. I, I, I know that I didn't come up with that theory. Paul has said no, no. But the line, you, you and, and I have I to interpret that song as being a sort of love letter slash breakup letter with him and John Lennon. And I, I this this whole year makes me very sad. And, and I, I have to put that song in that context. I do want to cash in a, uh, you said that Phil Spector's fingerprints are all over this album and Phil, Spect- Phil Spector's fingerprints would be all over a couple crime scenes later on. In life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going through this podcast with that still in my dome. Um, <laughs> classic it, it feels very casual and how it's, it's like it, it i think it's because i look back and it's like this is the last beatles album i don't care if it was recorded before abbey road it's like here's a bunch of good songs and they kind of bounce around and you're gonna hear from just about all of us and it's a good it's a good record it's definitely a mish a mishmash which is fine uh the only ones that i don't really like are one after 909 which is just Another classic John Lennon, like I'm Chuck Berry. And it's like, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> I think that's a, I, I was reading that like, this is a moment of like, let's get back to just playing rock and roll. And that's like, that's like a, a oversimplified, not to the level of the Beatles version of that. It's still good because it's the Beatles. It's fine. But it, it's like, it feels a little corny for them at this point. Well, apparently it was a song that John wrote in like 1963 or something like yeah, that. Totally. That pulled out of the... Completely makes sense. Um, and then the other song I don't like is Across the Universe, which is just classic syrupy John Lennon, like words that sound more meaningful than they actually are. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. To me, Across the Universe and Long and Winding Road are kind of like, they're good songs. I understand that they're good songs. Um, they're, they're this like very slow paced kind of like, I don't know. They feel like if if the long and winding road is only three minutes and thirty eight seconds long, and across the universe is only three forty eight, why do those songs feel like six minute songs to me? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you take you take that and then add uh, "Don't Let Me Down," like you said on that "Let It Be Naked." Like there's, mm-hmm. it's so good. A, a quote that I I read from George Martin was apparently there was a conflict uh, where George Martin was denied producing credits on this album, even though he was like in the studio recording this stuff with them uh, and the producing credits ended up going to Phil Spector and George Martin had a, a quip that it should, the album should have been labeled produced by George Martin overproduced by Phil Spector. 
character. Hell yeah. I kind of, I mean, I agree with them. Like, I don't know. I don't know how much they take off of long and winding road. I've listened to let it be naked, but I didn't really like side by side those two. Um, it is, it is more kind of flourishy stuff than you need. I feel like anytime I hear people talk about Phil Spector and the wall of sound, it's like, come on, you're just, you're just reciting something someone else said. Sure. Phil, Phil Spector is obviously a trailblazing, brilliant music producer, but some marketing person out there just like wall of sound, that phrase sounds cool and it's going to get said a lot. And yeah. You know. Well, I mean, you can't talk about this year without talking about him. Um, it's true. Because he also produced All Things Must Pass. Uh, and he also produced, um, I don't know if he produced Plastic Ono Band, but he did produce Instant Karma as well, which is was a single that came out this year. There's no doubt. You, he's he's hugely important. I, I, I don't, it's not for me to sit there and say that about Phil Spector, but that the the stuff he did on this, I'm, I'm team uh, mopey, complainy paul mccartney on this that i mean i'm i'm with you and i'm generally in that camp as well um and and i guess i was just more surprised i'm the type of person you know this that i'll almost always elect for the stripped down version of something and so when i kind of when let it be naked when i sat down with that i was like oh yeah this is going to be raw and it just wasn't that different it wasn't that that significant of a change to really be like oh this is a totally different thing other than this kind of shuffling things around the production is still pretty similar so um there's another person that you cannot talk about this year or this decade without and um it's time for me to make my my big apology justin (laughs) let's hear it uh, so on an earlier episode of this podcast, I dismissively um, told the story about the, the keyboard player on these sessions um, and how he was invited to come play and then uh, was like, cool, I'm in the Beatles now. And, and everyone was like, what? No. Um, that telling of that story is so horrifically wrong that I'm embarrassed for myself and I feel the need to set the record straight. So the keyboard player, um, I think maybe even you could call him organist for Let It Be was Billy Preston, who I think is hugely important for this record. Um, But Billy Preston was not some no-name session musician. Well, first of all, to that specific story, it wasn't Billy Preston who said, hey, I'm in the Beatles now. It was John and George who said, hey, maybe we should add this guy full time. And it was Paul McCartney who said, we can barely get four people to agree on things. How are we going to get five people? Which is there. That is like that is a, a like correction on many levels here. Yes. I feel I feel you on coming clean on this right now, because I mean, this is a podcast that's all about just firing from the hip and saying what you want to say. But I, I uh, respect what you're doing right now. I did, I, I did not mean to insult Billy Preston on that level, especially because as I've learned more about him, my respect has grown by leaps and bounds. So uh, Billy Preston would not only play um, on, on this album, he was also on All Things Must Pass. And he, you know what else he played on? He played on every Rolling Stones record in the 1970s from Sticky Fingers on. Dang. He was on Sticky Fingers. He was on Exile on Main Street, Goat's Head Soup, all of them. So this man is about to be in our life for a little yes. while. Yes, he is here to stay. So you better get used to Billy Preston. But it doesn't 
it doesn't stop there. No, no, no. This guy is, uh, what was that Woody Allen movie, Zelig? Have you ever seen that? Do you know what that is? Have not. It's like a movie where he plays, it's like a Forrest Gump type thing where he's just in everything that you've ever um, encountered. He, he just was there. So he had a successful solo career, which had a number one hit called um, Will It Go Round in Circles uh, and the song Nothing From Nothing. You know that song? Nothing from nothing beats nothing. Both of those, Billy Preston, um, huge mega hits. He co-wrote the song, You Are So Beautiful with Joe Cocker. Dang. And he didn't write the song, but he suggested, he gave the phrase, I don't know how exactly this works, but he gave the phrase to Stephen Still, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. He gave that to Stephen Still, who then wrote that song. Damn, I'm going to get in the phrase, the phrase selling uh, business. <laughs> I don't think he made any money off of it. I think he was just like, I got a good one for you. Um, and then to add all of that, he was the first ever musical guest on Saturday Night Live. That's insane. <laughs> I know. Don't you see why I have to make this apology? Can't believe you slandered this man. And there is a video of him on YouTube performing as an 11-year-old with Nat King Cole at the age of 11. That's wild. That's crazy. So Billy Preston, I apologize. Um, rest in peace. He's no longer with us. Um, you are a certified badass. I love your music. I love your work on Let It Be. Um, and I hope that in the afterlife, he has forgiven me. On one hand, he should have been the fifth Beatle. But on the other hand, we get him for a whole decade of Rolling Stones album. So yes. He, he, he does okay. And so he, my slander um, is, not, is not important to, to the Billy Preston story. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Yeah, there will be an answer, let it be. McCartney puts out self-titled McCartney. John Lennon puts out Plastic Ono Band. George Harrison puts out All Things Must Pass. And Ringo puts out two records, uh, one called Sentimental Journey and one called Buku of Blues. Let's let's do the Ringo. Let's have our Ringo moment real quick. Um, because this is the, the other three, like I think that McCartney's wasn't immediately well received. The other two are like all timers. And I think the, and the McCartney one is up there now, too. Like those are all really well regarded albums. The Ringo ones. I was reading about Sentimental Journey and it like bummed me out. It was like, <laughs> like, like Ringo, the band is ending Ringo, who we, I think we've, we've done a good job of like putting a lot of respect on Ringo, love what Ringo does to the Beatles. But like the reality is he's, he's surrounded by three brilliant songwriters and now a band is breaking up. So the process of navigating your solo career is going to be weird. And at the suggestion of some of the band members and like, Paul even helps arrange a song on, on sentimental journey. And it's like at the urge of like Ringo's mom who loves like old classic standards, sentimental journey is a cover of old, like Sinatra style songs. It ain't pretty. The best thing about both of these albums is the cover of Buku of blues, the picture of Ringo. I have, I have a very, very specific hatred of like 
big band like Sinatra music, like oh, like yeah. what I call lounge music. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about that. I don't know where you land no, on all that. I don't. I don't. I'm not a fan, but I don't. I didn't realize you had such a specific hatred. Oh, just really like the like bursting horns and the sort of like hammy. It's like everything that I have a hard time with, you know, like overproduction, all of it. A really hard time with it. And so the idea that like he gets shuffled off, and I understand someone's family and their parents and and growing up like doing a an album of standards that you're that you grew up with but oh my god like taking that stuff and then combining it with Ringo it just was very unpleasant night and day night and day under the hide of me after a full day of listening to all of um the other solo solo records i will say if you get to buku of blues in addition to that bitch and cover uh that's that's a a guy he met a guy who played country music they got together that guy spearheaded the writing of like a dozen country songs and and uh ringo recorded that in like it's not great it's not I, i'm not putting it in the trash heap with sentimental journey even though buku of blues like did nothing but it's just some fine country songs you know like i'm not gonna go to say that they're good but i was reading a book and they hummed along in the background i was fine with it alongside the road with holes in my soul in my shoes john really summed this up and i feel like i have to orient myself this year a lot of my thinking and processing of this music has come in the context of reading uh, lennon remembers which he just takes everyone to task and, and it's just like a machine gun of hatred and vitriol and sarcasm he asks him what he thinks about these two Ringo records and he says I was less embarrassed by the second one hell yeah me too that's that's Buku of Blues <laughs> that's a absolutely I, savage quote from him but I I agree with the overproduction too I feel like considering we're just talking about like the production on that first Ringo record, it makes Phil Spector's production on Let It Be look like a, a Robert Johnston recording. I, as someone who reacts in a very, like almost like a physical visceral way to to like that kind of big band lounge act music, the idea of that hitting me, like those, those like that kind of music and then catching like the Octopus's Garden guy's voice over it, it was just like, <laughs> oh, who, who? This is just absolutely brutal. And and that, what I will say is like, Buku of Blues doesn't do that to me. And I think Ringo's voice, one, there's a quote somewhere, like I think Ringo's voice does lend itself to a sort of kind of swingy, catchy, bouncy kind of country music. Whether it, it's- It does. Yeah, whether it's your favorite or not, it does lend itself to that. And I, I have a place in my life for that. And so th- that goes to show all this stuff is just a matter of taste in some ways, but I- and with John on that. Uh, anything that you can just come and record in two days. And it, it wasn't like Ringo just like recorded his vocal parts in two days. They recorded everything like with a bunch of session musicians. It just feels so mercenary and generic. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily offensive to my ears per se, but it's it's pretty bad to me. And, yeah. and when you already release an album that year, like, I don't know, there's some weird opportunism going on there. But also, to Ringo's credit, he also plays drums on All Things Must Pass and on Plastic Ono Band. Really wanna see you, Lord. Really wanna see you. 
It just got me thinking that like when Ringo left the band, that's like that moment when you're at like a family reunion or something and like two of your your family are getting into an argument and then like you know the the beloved person in the family like the, your great aunt like just runs off and starts crying and it's like you see now you made Ringo upset look what <laughs> you've done <laughs> I, I I agree like he Ringo feels like a he's the familial uh, guy you want you want to be happy in that um but on top of that interpersonal level, John talks about, he was asked, well, why did you use Ringo? And he is saying that it's just basically the rapport they have, the musicianship of, I can be playing a song and I give Ringo a look or, or I tap my foot a certain way and he knows exactly what I'm wanting him to do. And you can't just get that from anyone. Totally. I think that happens when a lot of artists go solo, like they're like, sure, you can get the quote unquote best drummer or best bassist to play with you, but it's not going to, There, there's a thing that isn't captured in the word best that is like just a product of playing together and chemistry and everything. And clearly the Beatles have that probably on a level beyond any other band ever. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's set the Ringo albums aside and just say, thanks. You get the participation trophy. And so that leaves us with all things must pass John Lennon. I don't understand the title of this album. Is it John Lennon? Is it plastic Ono band? Is it both? And then McCartney, which is definitely just McCartney or McCartney one. Um, personally, I hate that Paul McCartney album. I think it's really just dreck. Um, Maybe I'm Amazed is an amazing song. Uh, no no pun intended. Um, and, and it's one of my favorite songs. I love it. I love Paul McCartney. I'm sure I've listened to this album at some point, which the fact that I can barely even remember it is all I really need to say about it. Um, this is a huge swing and a miss. And again, I'm the I'm the, the target audience for this. I love Paul McCartney and I love simple lo-fi stripped down music. This stuff is so undercooked that it would give you salmonella. Are you are you done? I don't know. <laughs> I absolutely loved this album. Oh this yeah. I absolutely loved it. I don't know how much time you spent with it in like uh like a good set of headphones cu- cupping your ears and everything. This like you know what I what I felt while listening to this album, and I'm very glad that like I started listening to this album with without reading about the fact that it was like home recorded and, and on a four track, which is like the idea of doing that now. That's like especially like these there's there's a thousand people doing that every minute in in uh, the coronavirus quarantine. Like that's what that's how people make music now. That is not the case in in. 1970 when he's making this and it does sound small it does sound like a small room it does sound um it's a lo-fi record for sure but this stuff like it is panned to your hard left and hard right in a ton of places there's all this kind of percussion that like makes you it's almost like stimulating on a physical level or something like that like and like when you get to the the last song cream (laughs) acrory
I don't actually know how I would judge this if, say, it was a Beatles record. I probably would be like, what was this or something? But I think it's like a, it symbolized to me like the band being out from under their own weight or something. Like, it's like not being the Beatles is what gives you permission to make this record. I loved it. And, 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 and also to make like little, like literally four or five songs or just instrumentals on like a 12 or 13 song album. I was, I was there for it. I liked it. Bicycles for two Broken hearted Jubilee I, I love that you loved it. And I honestly, it just like missed the groove for me. I don't know how else to explain it. Like I could see a world in which I felt the same way that you did. I just, it just didn't work for me. And it, what you're saying is making me think about the artifice of this podcast. Have you ever like listened to or thought about these albums together? Like, what do you mean these albums? Like these four Beatles albums that let it be uh, plus these three solo albums from John, George and Paul. Like you've probably listened to McCartney before all things must pass before, but have you ever listened to them in conversation with each other? Absolutely not. I think I, I would have a cursory understanding of the fact that they came out within a couple years of each other, but no, I didn't. I honestly had no idea that all four members put out an album the same year as Let It Be. John literally left. He left and Paul and the business managers of the Beatles said, hey, okay, you're leaving. Please don't tell anyone because we have a bunch of shit coming out. We have records in this movie coming out and it's going to be damaging for us financially. Um, so if you could like, it's fine. You can leave just like, don't tell anyone. And he was like, all right, whatever, fine. And then Paul came out um, like six months later and this album McCartney was recorded in total secrecy. Yeah. Nobody knew that this, he was doing this in a home and, in Scotland. Right. Right. Um, and then eventually like did some mixing or whatever in a studio. He gave out a press release announcing this record and also saying, I'm leaving the Beatles. And puts out McCartney. He preempted Let It Be with McCartney, I think. I think McCartney came out before it. Yeah, there was a bunch of this year, there was a bunch of back and forth of like, this album's coming out and like, oh, Ringo's coming out. Like, we need to push your album back. Well, fuck you. I don't want to push my album back, blah, blah. Like a lot of that stuff. And I, it, it, it all just makes me sad. And there's, there's so much back and forth on this stuff and there's so much hard feelings. And Justin, I just want to say, if we ever don't make podcasts together again, please don't write a song about me. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. Please don't record a podcast about me. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'll do it. I, I got a couple friends who would be down to do that podcast with me. <laughs> Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. Maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you. Maybe I'm amazed the way you So he makes this album 
and it's in like sort of a depressed state up in Scotland at his house with his wife. He's drinking a lot and it's made in secrecy. Comes out around the time of this album and, and is basically like, all right, Beatles are done officially. But it's this like very small sounding lo-fi record where he plays almost, he plays essentially all the instruments on it. And then you have George Harrison who makes a straight up triple album like with tons of flourishes and everything. And that this comes later in the year. Like I think we're talking February of 70 with McCartney or early in, early in the year. And then Harrison and, and Plastic Ono band come out at the very end of the year. But the George Harrison album, as much as you can hear, I think it's, it's more a product of heading into the seventies and like really what my favorite period of like the sound of recorded music, which is, why I did a Jackson Brown podcast. Something about the way things were recorded from like 1970 to 73 or something like that is 74 maybe. is just some of my favorite releases. And as I listened to the George Harrison album with all the like George Harrison playing slide guitar and stuff, I realized first of all, how much I listened to that album kind of without remembering it. Like I remembered it so much of this music so vividly uh-huh. in a way that I kind of didn't expect. And also just, I thought it was great. I, I was unexpected. And I think you and I, I texted you early in the week of this, like, Oh my God, I feel like I have a list of chores, like with all these Beatles <laughs> albums. Like I just was like, not really looking forward to trying to like do justice to listening to all this music. And this beastly George Harrison album was part of that, but it really didn't take long. I liked it a lot. I loved it. My sweet Lord. For whatever reason, I had kind of saved that for last. And I was like, oh, I only have All Things Must Pass left to listen to. And then I was like, what? That's how many songs? God damn it. And it was such a joy. It was such a pleasure. Um, And yeah, I loved it too. I think whatever our personal opinions are, there's no question that this is the most influential and successful of this first round of solo albums. It is true. That also a lot of that is due to Phil Spector's producing. I think that, you know, he was influential on that as well. I did not realize until doing some of my research how influenced uh, George Harrison was by Bob Dylan on this record. I mean, including actually having a Bob Dylan song and one that Bob Dylan co-wrote, but that, you know, George Harrison had spent a lot of time in Woodstock with Dylan in the band and something about that context. Um, I, I, it helped me enjoy it even more and, and kind of get the album and get the feeling even more. You hear it like it's it's I feel like we're lucky to get this like dump of I don't know dump sounds bad you get this big package of Jesus Christ I said dump and big package the fuck's going on (laughs) no it's it's a classic tale though I like it's a classic backlog tale and I think about this all the time and my favorite example or that I when I first realized this is the band television Um, which is like a punk indie band from the late 70s. And their first album is amazing. It's perfect. It's pitch perfect. It's so mature. Like this is their first album. Oh my God. And then their second album follow-up, which came out like a year later is just, eh, 
it's just whatever. And I was always confounded. I was like, how can you write such an amazing masterpiece? And it's like, because these 10 songs that they had on there, they had been playing for five or six years and yeah. they had been crafting those over a long period of time. And then when it came time to make a second album, they all of a sudden, they only had 12 months to like write another album's worth of material. And obviously George Harrison is a, a much more successful songwriter than that. But I just, you, if you look at bands outputs and stuff, you'll see this from time to time where it's like, Whoa, where did this come from? It's like, yeah, because this is a, a underserved, starved artistic person who has, you know, had years of writing songs and developing their craft. And then finally someone gives them the opportunity. If not for you, babe, I couldn't even find the door. As far as all the out songs belonging on one album together and feeling feeling like they're a slice of one moment from one person's vision and like like just a, an experience like I listened to all these albums while sitting and reading for like three or four hours straight which is like something I had done in a really long time and so it was like I was picking my moments to kind of like put the book down listen even read up on stuff the Harrison album was so good it's really good yeah. Okay. So that's like, th this is the problem with the word best. Like I said earlier, is it the most influential of these albums? I would say yes. Is it the most successful? I would say yes. Is it the most fully realized? Yes. Best? Um, maybe, maybe not my favorite. Um, part of the reason for that is you talked about that, like Sony TV commercial with uh, the Paul McCartney song getting better. Yeah. Just every time I hear what is life? I I just I'm instantly in a rom com trailer. What I feel I can't say my love is anytime. I don't know where you stand on this. I, I, I agree with all of the, the plaudits that were giving this record. I just have no time for the like sappy religious stuff it it just is so boring to me yeah it's not it's not my thing either in particular but i like this a lot of that stuff does seem like it's sliced a little more from 68 and like early 69 than 1970 in the years that will follow like those years that will follow are not really that's not really the tenor of those years right unlike plastic ono band which very much feels like a post Altamont, post 60s album. Totally. Okay, I am here with Christian Swain of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, also a Pantheon Podcast Network show. Uh, Christian is recently did a couple episodes about the 19, the Beatles and Rolling Stones in 1969, largely. Um, and more recently treaded into 1970 with an episode that goes into Kent State in Ohio. And uh, Christian, thanks for joining this show. How you doing? Good, Justin. How about yourself, man? Also doing great. Hey, um, I, I would be remiss uh, as president and CEO of Pantheon Podcast if I did not mention that uh, you have some AKG headphones on. 
I do have some AKG headphones on <laughs> and I am speaking into an AKG microphone right now. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Well, so the way I, I want you to take this question, however you want to take it, but we're in 1970 Beatles put out a bunch of albums independently and together and the Rolling Stones put out a live album. Who do you got in this year? And uh, ask yourself any questions beyond that too. I, I mean, to, to me, I have to go with the Stones because that is they're right in the middle of their peak uh, you know, between 68 and um, 72. So, you know, from uh, uh, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street. I, I mean, those are just four giants uh, that they put together. The uh, The Beatles are winding down April 9th. Uh, you know, Paul uh, McCartney announces uh, through a journalist that, uh, you know, the Beatles have broken up, uh, pisses off John. Um, you know, by the end of the year, uh, the lawsuit uh, uh, occurs. In fact, I think it's January 30, uh, excuse me, December 31st, that the lawsuit is actually filed. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you start suing your bandmates, it's uh, it's pretty much over. Uh, you know, and the Stones continue, um, uh, you know, with various success, uh, um, I, I think, um, uh, on the recorded side. Um, uh, you know, there's still some classic albums to, to, to come, uh, some girls, you know, being the obvious choice, uh, and they're still together. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the last big show I saw before pandemic was the Rolling Stones, uh, in a, in a stadium and, you know, they still, they still got it. They can still rock the house. It's pretty uh, insane. And that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Pretty I, one of them was literally 80 years old. So yeah. it's, it's just ridiculous. We're literally decades and decades after this point we're talking about in the podcast. And that to say that is crazy. I know. Isn't that, isn't that, but so 1970, you know, it is in the middle of peak stones. It is at the end of the Beatles. Um, uh, yes, there's solo work that the, the, the four have put out. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'd have to go with George Harrison as the early dark horse winner, um, uh, there, uh, and, uh, um, but, um, you know, uh, you know, the, their peak is behind them, you know, 1970 is not kind, uh, to, to them as a unit, whereas, um, you know, the stones, you know, they're licking their wounds from Altamont, uh, you know, they all, uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, escaped uh, from justice uh, here in the <laughs> San Francisco area, left their tour manager, Sam Cutler, holding the bag to deal with, uh, although Sam landed on his feet by ending up managing uh, the Grateful Dead. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, the Stones went home and said, oh, shit, what happened there? Um, there's the film that comes out uh, later uh, uh, in the year, along with Woodstock, uh, the film itself, which solidifies rock and roll as, uh, you know, a cultural phenomenon. And uh, and at the same time, 1970 begins uh, the big money era for uh, for rock and roll, of which the Stones capitalize on probably more so than just about anybody else. Yeah, for real. I, I actually really like that your your approach to the question is like the a band, the Rolling Stones, at kind of like squarely in the middle of their their best period, whereas yeah. the Beatles are coming out of it. I think the way Ryan and I had our conversation was very much like these guys have there's like five or six albums between all the Beatles and one live album by the Rolling Stones. But if you take that question and think of it as like who who is more important in this year, it pretty it probably is the Rolling Stones. It, yeah. Would you say that Would you say that this is the first time the answer is the Rolling Stones? in their history or would could maybe the previous year 
Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question because the, the only other year of potential for the Stones to equal the Beatles is 69. Uh, you know, they, uh, they just released uh, Beggar's Banquet. That was the last contributions of Brian's, Brian Jones. Um, Mick Taylor's firmly in the band with, uh, with Let It Bleed. Uh, you know, they are recording um, uh, like motherfuckers uh, on this tour uh, in, uh, uh, of America. You know, the famous 69 tour, which is the uh, template for all rock and roll tours from, from then on. This is, that's the classic, you know, uh, uh, all the drugs, all the women, uh, you know, the, 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 the jet flights uh, from town to town. Uh, you know, the classic idea of the rock star and the rock star tour. It's, it starts in 69 with that, uh, that 69 American tour. Of course, it ends in tragedy with, uh, you know, the Altamont uh, uh, concert there uh, in December of that year. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the Beatles did put out um, uh, Abbey Road uh, in 69, um, their last classic uh, album. And, and nothing against Let It Bleed. I, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, let it bleed. Uh, excuse me. Um, let it be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. To let it bleed. <laughs> believe me. Believe me. We've done that a few times ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's some intention to that uh, as well uh, uh, from the boys, but um, um, you know, let it be naked uh, is a, a real treat um, and shows that you know they still had it. Um, uh, you know, obviously there was uh, some issues with the production, uh, you know, remember Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road. Uh, it was a chore. It was difficult. Um, you know, there was the um, uh, the Phil Spector uh, piece uh, that uh, that goes into that, which, you know, uh, some liked, most didn't, uh, including uh, um, some of the band. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was fixed a, a little bit better by the time it came out in 70. But um, if you go and listen to the, the naked, uh, let it be, it's, they, they, they still had some things to, 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 to do. They, they still were the Beatles. Uh, there's no two ways about that, but um, you know, to your point, I mean, the, uh, as, as I made that, um, you know, the, the stones are right in the middle of their peak period and the Beatles are, you know, pretty much done. Yeah. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to kind of wind this down. I think that's, I'm excited because I was so familiar with everything up to this point, besides maybe some of the early like Rolling Stones, like EPs and, and things like that. Yeah. But those are mostly cover songs and whatnot. And now we enter into this period where there's going to be these Beatles solo projects that I really haven't even heard. I mean, I've heard McCartney and Ram and Plastic Ono Band and the ones from this year, but the next couple of years, it's some solo records I really haven't even listened to up against sticky fingers and exile on main street and stuff. And it's like, it really flips the tables on what the podcast has been up to this point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure uh, it was pretty much Beatles uh, all the way. Uh, the only year, as, as we just said, uh, 69 is when the stones begin to overtake them. Um, and you know, what we've said uh, in our, um, uh, in our take uh, between the Beatles and the stones, especially uh, when we get to 69, which was a two part, almost four hour um, uh, episode uh, is that, uh, you know, the Beatles could really do just about everything on record and, 
you know, the Stones are practitioners, the, Beater, the Beatles are, are artisans uh, when it comes to on record. But live, remember the Beatles quit touring in 66, the Stones continue, they really pretty much invent the concert uh, industry that goes on into the 70s. Almost every incarnation and progression in live, uh, the live um, uh, scene, uh, it starts with the stones, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the best sound system, lighting systems, uh, or you're talking about corporate sponsorship, or you're talking about stadium tours, solo access stadium tour tours, not festivals and that sort of thing. You know, the stones just, you know, they, 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 there's no comparison uh, to, to the, to them with the Beatles when it comes to that um, on record. Yeah. You know, up until 69, you know, the, the, the Beatles owned uh, the Stones um, uh, in, a, in a fun, uh, friendly rivalry, by the way. Cool. Well, where can people find you, Christian, and find the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project and Pantheon, etc.? Yeah, well, you know, PantheonPodcast.com is our uh, website home base. Uh, you know, uh, I do um, uh, rock and roll archaeology. You can find that on uh, on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. And I think I'm Swain underscore Christian on Twitter. Beautiful. Thank you for joining this one. Justin, lovely. Anytime. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. A lot of my readings and, and, and stuff that I've done this week has led me to a really love-hate relationship with John Lennon and just this period of his life. Um, and, and this is not by no means a flawless album, um, but I just love it. It feels really true and, and real to me. There's a lot of bullshit on here. <laughs> There's, it just feels like a, a, like a kid who's been taken to like a child psychiatrist and he's like running to every corner of the room screaming, just trying to get someone's attention and trying to get them to understand. I like that. But I also was thinking while you're talking about McCartney and you're sort of praising its lo-fi bedroom aesthetics, I feel like this album is actually really stripped down and kind of lo-fi and bare too, just in a different, more aggressive kind of way. Yep. And if you listen to this, the number of track, like the number of instruments or tracks at any one given time on this album is, is usually not that many. It's usually just a guitar, bass, and like a lot of the drums that Ringo plays on here is just him pounding the kick drum. Of all of these albums, um, besides Let It Be, this one just has the, the most songs that I've just really have been listening to over and over again. Um, between Hold On, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. I love that song, although it does, it does hold a distinction for me. Do you have any songs that you're like, this is one of my favorite songs, and it's almost ruined by this one thing? So I, I have had that. I don't have a specific moment right now, but I hope that Hold On has something to do with... Uh... Eric Clapton in some way. Oh no, but Eric <laughs> Clapton is around on a lot of this stuff. He's he on this record. On, he's on this record. Um, he was on, he's on all things must pass. I don't think I ever realized until we did this project, just how intertwined he was with the Beatles other than just like screwing George Harrison's wife. Um, but on the song, hold on, there's just, there's one part in it. I'm assuming it's John Lennon in between one of the verses where he just goes cookie 
<laughs> Why is that in the song? It's 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 infuriating to me. Um, it's it's in keeping with the way you describe the record, right? It's 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 gonna it's gonna be like, oh, I don't need that. Like someone should have taken a knife to it. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff really that John Lennon does throughout the whole entire like later era of the Beatles and this period of his solo career that is him doing crazy shit like that that either lands or doesn't land. And he's not overthinking it. Yeah. To a, to a degree. I mean, he's overthinking everything else, um, but he's not overthinking that. So that song I found out, which I, I just is a fucking barn burner of a song. I, I found out. I, I found out. Which I'll also put in with Well, 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 which I, I that song is just like, you know, will just tear up a room like that that those those songs like just get me going well 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 pretty much the whole middle section of this album from hold on through look at me is just like i i i think it's put it up against anything i would really agree with that i love look at me is amazing working class hero is like i'm um, very much here for that kind of song um feel it feels a little weird coming from like i i think i know what john lennon's doing at that time and who he's speaking on behalf of but it's like (laughs) one of my favorite recurring features on this podcast is you uh calling out the the rolling stones for being posh london yuppies who are not going to get out into like fight the hell's angels at altamont while they're singing street fighting man um just by virtue of the like the, the beatles have just done like an eight-year run unlike any band ever ever and hearing john lennon sing that song you can you can feel a little bit like like something feels like it's in a weird place but i think he he was so I hundred percent agree with you. I, I I don't actually I can't really listen to that song because I feel that so strongly that it's just calculated. This album works so good for me, and yet my distaste for John has like never been higher because everything he does just feels like a fashionable put on, and his involvement in politics and sort of like liberal new left politics, it just feels like another version of like. A drug culture or the Maharishi or his like experimental therapy that he's doing like they all just feel like do you think he's the type to put that on deliberately or do you think he's the type to just very very dramatically get into things then I mean that I think that's probably a more accurate and I, I don't really know don't believe So yeah, then you get to the song God, which is just such a jerk off wanker song to me. It's just like so completely artless and just like the festivist airing of grievances. Second to last track. Second to last track on the McCartney album is maybe I'm amazed, just saying. That's a that's a damn good argument. And I, I don't necessarily have a comeback for that, but the a metric. I didn't say going in that a metric on this podcast would be uh who had the better second to last song on the album. <laughs> you didn't ask me what what's my all-time favorite second to last song on an album. 
<laughs> What's your second favorite second to last song? On- <sighs> okay. All right. Give me two months to think about it. But his obsession with Jesus imagery and just always like Jesus, this, I don't believe in God. Don't believe in Elvis. Don't believe in Zimmerman, you know, which is obviously Bob Dylan. And just like, who asked you? Like, <laughs> this is why you're so pumped to get to imagine year. I think. I mean, yeah, I would, but I, I almost I want to like represent all of these people that he's he's you know saying oh I don't believe in them and I I want to like do a press release on behalf of all of them like Elvis and Paul McCartney and Jesus and be like yo keep our name out of your mouth okay <laughs> well so here uh, as we as we find our way toward the end up to this point not only in this podcast recording series but also just in my life I thought like it's a bummer that the Beatles were done before playing even a decade's worth of music. You know, they did a ton with the, with, with the time they had, but always thought like, I, I would, I wish there was more of the Beatles to go on and listening to this year, like very, very clearly made me realize I'm extremely glad the Beatles broke up. Like I'm glad we have this like encapsulated period that was the Beatles and listening to these albums like the really the McCartney Harrison and Lennon albums like they're out from under the weight of that band and they are even if those albums aren't as good or they're like probably on a subconscious level even I'm not grading them as the Beatles anymore so not only am I like I'm not taking McCartney and trying to like place it up against uh like Revolver I'm also not taking the way we've talked so many times about comparing Harrison to Lennon and McCartney. I'm not doing that on the Harrison album. I'm just listening to the Harrison album. And like, I know it's, this might be, but until like the wings get going and a little bit, you know, there's good, there's a lot for me to discover in the coming years. And this year has made me even more excited to do that. But like, I, I love these solo records. I'm so glad they exist. And I think, the Beatles did so much in, in that amount of time that like what would really have happened to the Beatles if they kept being the Beatles for 10, 15, 20 more years? The answer is that it's probably like what the Rolling Stones do in the 70s or in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm glad the yeah, Beatles I don't, broke up. I don't think John, <laughs> that's such a good thesis statement. I'm glad they broke up. I, they would have broken up at some point if they went the direction of the Rolling Stones. Um, I, I just don't think John would, John wouldn't have let them become the Rolling Stones and he wouldn't have let them become Wings even. I think them getting a chance to explore with other musicians. I really like Klaus Vormann's bass on uh, you know, the Plastic Ono band record. And there's so many musicians on All Things Must Pass. Like you could, it, it's hard to, to single out you know, a specific person's playing. And Klaus Vorman also plays bass guitar on that. Um, and we already talked about Billy Preston and all that stuff, but I did a kind of thought experiment. I was having a similar sort of thought. What if Paul was like the leader that he should have been? And also what if John wasn't like a lazy asshole, um, which he definitely was. And what if he said, what if he did say what I did earlier, which he said, okay, we're going to release a, Be- a Beatles record but it's going to be all George songs and we're going to back you, George, and we're going to, you're going to write the songs. We're going to help you. We're going to suggest stuff. We're going to play parts on it. And this one's going to be George. And the next record is going to be a John record. And the next record is going to be a Paul record. And maybe Ringo will give you one song. Um, 
<laughs> there's a scenario where that produces something equally as great and they get to continue honing and make use of their individual their, their own personal chemistry and history and their ability to improve their each other's stuff and still bring in people like billy preston and eric clapton to play on that stuff a couple can i give you a couple odds and ends wrap up things as we're winding this down yes and uh, i think we should i think we should rank the, the albums this okay year. okay i'm gonna do my odds and ends and then let's rank them um have you seen the alternate cover to let it be the one that john wanted it to be i don't think so and it, it, it actually was named initially get back right that's right and uh if you go to the wikipedia page for let it be it's a picture um then they took the photo they, they there's a mock-up of the album it's the four beatles uh in 1969 recreating the please please me album cover except with their like long hair and agedness and it looks awesome it's so oh, yeah. much better it's actually that album it's actually a version of that that they put on the blue uh anthology one so right. it's like the young one and then that one right hell yeah that that no that is definitely the let it be album cover is like i mean it's it's kind of funny in this moment because it looks like a zoom call it looks like the gallery view on a zoom call but <laughs> but it it's it's just like what is this like someone just took four pictures of them and put them here like there's it's really not even an album cover yeah it's pretty lazy um Another thing, so again, if you guys are interested, you can find it online. There's a, a huge, it's probably like 30,000 word interview that John Lennon did with Rolling Stone. Um, and in this interview, he blames his and Yoko's heroin addiction on the Beatles not accepting Yoko and said, because George and Paul weren't nice to Yoko, that's why they started doing heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna remember that if I ever slip into a, a heroin problem, <laughs> blaming yes, you and Matt. That's that's okay. I'll take that. Um, and then my last odds and end is when doing research on the Let It Be Naked album and the release of that, which came out. It came out in 2003, and as part of the release, there was a roundtable a, a broadcast roundtable of the album um that was hosted by pat o'brien of access hollywood fame are you ready for the musicians that was on the roundtable to discuss let it be naked in 2003 so i hope i hope i'm ready let's go i don't think you're ready cheryl crow i've said this before but cheryl crow does does like some good beatles covers i've heard so i don't okay. yeah cheryl cheryl crow is not that she's appropriate for this uh jc Chazay. Is that a Backstreet Boy? In sync. Okay. Billy Joel. Hell yeah. Uh, and Fred Durst. Ooh, that is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> on Let It, if we're bringing Fred Durst on to talk about Let It Be Naked. JC That's like the like circuit of people showing up on TRL around that time. Well, uh, who do you want to, who, who should rank these first? And, and for all you Rolling Stones, heads who stuck around this is where the rolling stones come back into the ranking so slip okay your, slip get your yayas in there somewhere are we when we're including let it be as well yeah i'm gonna say let it be is number one all things must pass is number two um mccartney is three odo band is four yayas is five buku of blues is six and uh, sentimental journey is not allowed on my list 
So my list would be mostly the same. The only difference is that I it would be let it let it be, then Plastic Ono Band, then All Things Must Pass, then McCartney. Although All Things Must Pass and Plastic Ono Band are, are pretty close. Um, so yeah, <laughs> poor Ringo. Ringo would rank them the same way in this way. Ringo, Ringo, <laughs> Ringo rules. Like we've we've heaped a lot of praise on Ringo, but like. Ringo doing some cover songs and then playing some songs with session musicians that a different guy wrote in Nashville. Those are not the closest things to Ringo's heart. I like to imagine that he thought this is what they were all going to be doing. Like, yeah, Paul's just going to be like doodling away on the piano. And then he, he heard like all things was passed. was like, Oh no. <laughs> I do. I do like that. Like the Beatles end. This is the year that they end. And like, just just thinking of them as human beings and artists, they all go kind of like, I'm not going to say that making these albums is them processing the end of the Beatles, but they all kind of respond to that moment in their such distinct ways. Like McCartney depressed and drinking in a home in Scotland, making this like way ahead of its time lo-fi album all by himself. Harrison making a triple album of of that's like, kind of surprised no one would predict him to make to have the best album of this year then lennon makes you you've described plastic ono band really well then you got these ringo ones like there it's such a different reaction to the end of the beatles by all of them yeah you just summed it up perfectly like that's that's all that needs to be said and podcast (laughs) yeah which is why which is why it's the polar opposite of last year's like two pretty immaculate albums like very cool to celebrate them a little like there's a lot more to this year you know for me i think it's all downhill for john lennon and george harrison after this paul mccartney still has some work to do and some some notches to put on his belt i don't know that it gets any better for those two guys as a solo solo artists gonna be fun so so uh what do we got do we do we have the thing pulled up for what's next week Ram versus Sticky Fingers. Yeah, Wildlife is the. There's also the Wings album, Wildlife and Imagine. Yeah, we won't talk about Imagine. I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we will. Next week, I actually represent the Rolling Stones and Sticky Fingers. Going to be happy to do that, and you get Beatles, which is. Oh, no, we're going to be talking about Imagine a ton. I love Imagine now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool. Um, You can email this podcast at what, Ryan? Beatles versus stones pod at gmail.com. Um, and you can also email me personally at I'm sorry, Billy Preston at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I changed my handle recently away from my real name to routine layup. Um, not going to explain that to anyone, but uh, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at imagine all the people 420. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was my grandpa laugh. He made me do my grandpa laugh. <laughs> Riff Beatles, we'll miss you. We will miss you. I know it's about this podcast is about to get a whole lot different, and but it's gonna be fun. Um, Let's be real; it's gonna be the
at Baker's. No matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 